and thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our podcast and have a recommendation about someone you think we should have on to share their voice and journey with the world, by all means, let us know. It could be an aid worker, monastic, author, journalist, scholar, resistance leader, really anyone with some tie or another to the ongoing situation in Myanmar. To offer up a name, go to our website, insightmyanmar.org, and let us know. But for now, just sit back and take a listen to today's episode. A lack of conscience is all it takes to diagnose yourself with ignorance. guest tonight is someone who has done uh, quite a bit of research on the NUG and has recently had an article published posing and answering the question, is the NUG ready to govern? Uh, so uh, I'd like to thank you very much for, for coming to speak to us about this topic. I know it's going to be a little bit uh, controversial, but I think it's a very important topic to discuss, and I'm very pleased that you're here to discuss it with us. Uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to to explain to the audience who you are and what it is that you do. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, my name is Philip Anovit. Um, as you said, I've, I've published this article in The Diplomat. Um, I have been working on Myanmar, in Myanmar for, for a number of years, um, for the UN first. Now I work independently since um, the coup in 2021. I've been um, an advisor to a number of uh, development partners on their programming and um, have been in touch with uh, many stakeholders inside the, the NUG, um, also the CRPH. Um, and that was that experience was the basis of the article that you've you've read, and um, uh, on the basis of which uh, you've invited me to to be with you today. Uh, okay, so let's let's just jump uh, straight into this. So the article itself, and I've got the article um, in in front of me, and it is. It's not particularly long. We will link it below this episode so that people can uh, read through it. But the ultimate conclusion that you come to is that the national unity government fundamentally is in a position to be ready to govern and that the national unity government has met uh, most or all of the requirements that under conventional circumstances would be applied to an organization claiming to be a legitimate government and claiming to be a functional government. So 
can, can you just take us through the, the basic arguments that you're making for why you think the NUG meets the criteria for validity, why it meets the criteria for functionality, and why on the whole you think you can confidently state that the national unity government is ready to govern? Right. So when we, when we think about governments um, from, a, from a functional perspective, not, not from a legal perspective now, then there's certain expectations that we and also the international community has had uh, of governments um, of what they need to do. Um, and many of these functions, is, is I would argue, um, are being performed um, by the NUG as we speak. So the NUG has certain capacities um, to act. Um, there is what we call a center of government, meaning um, the NUG has an established center that coordinates its activities across its different uh, portfolios, be it health, be it um, education support, and that center exercises a modicum of control. It has a decision-making mechanism. It has a cabinet that functions. Um, there's reporting on um, activities by the individual ministries going on. So all this is in place. There's a financial control framework that's in place, while rudimentary, all of that is in place. Um, and then, of course, there's the, there's the big question of um, control of uh, presence on the ground, of loyalty on the ground. And um, I don't think we have to discuss the, the political loyalties, the, the support that the NUG as an institution um, and as a member of a much broader democratic coalition in Myanmar enjoys from the people. Um, that's not something um, we have to discuss in much detail, I assume, um, because it's, it's, it's plenty documented. Um, and then, yeah, you wanted to come in. So you, you note that there is a distinction to be made between the national unity government as the cabinet entity, uh, which is a comparatively small body. I, I think it has some 22 cabinet members, something along those lines, versus the much broader uh, sort of trappings of state. So we, we have this organization, the CRPH, we have this organization, the NUCC, there is a much larger political entity at play, which is larger than the, the, the cabinet itself. And then of course we, you know, we have a much broader, um, pro-democracy, let, let's say context, the pro-democracy movement, pro-democracy forces in general across the country. So the, for, for the benefit of specificity, what exactly is it that you're talking about when you're talking about the services that the NUG uh, provides, the control that it has, and so on. Right. So we're talking really about the functions of an executive government. Now. And those are, if we, want, if, you, if we should list them, maybe in the beginning you have uh, the central coordination um, that we've already discussed, um, the idea that there is control of resources, public financial management, money going in, public money going in, public money being spent is, is controlled um, and coordinated to a degree. Public administration, meaning um, that there is a certain control of A, planning of service that, services that are delivered, and, and B, how um, is the state administered? Um, in the case of Myanmar, in very important local administration and service delivery. And local administration, of course, is the, the most dynamic 
um, and I think we'll talk about it later, but it's the most dynamic field of, of invention um, in Myanmar, where there's, there's strong contestation between um, the, the NUG and, and its ally-supported structures vis-a-vis -vis, um, the atrophying, I would say, um, local administration of, of the um, State Administrative Council, the Junta government. Then there is international relations and also how aid is being managed usually is a criterion, right? So that you have a coordination as a government on how the international community acts with you and um, how, how aid is being used. And then there is the, the of course, the security sector, um, especially the civilian security sector, the question of providing security on the ground, police forces, and um, the provision of justice. And, and you know, across these functions, of course, uh, the performance of the NUG varies, but the NUG is active across all these functions and, the ex and its activities are expanding vis-a-vis -vis, um, the SAC, whereas the SAC's activities are actually receding across these functions. And so um, you have a government um, that is an executive government and that is capable of acting as an executive government. Mm. And so an important sort of uh, result of this, and I know that this may be a little bit outside of your wheelhouse, uh, you know, I, I respect it if it's not something that you can really comment on, but I'd be curious to hear your insights. Normally when we have a government that meets these pragmatic standards of legitimacy and of efficacy, we would begin to see international recognition and acceptance. And to date, the NUG has received very limited recognition and acceptance. Can you think of, of any reasons with regard to the NUG's actual uh, functions, the NUG's actual performance to date, that foreign countries would be hesitant to recognize them as a legitimate government? I think, um, well, there's, there's, um, a number of reasons that you can think about. Um, I would suggest, of course, there are some related to um, the functions and the, the degree of control of the NUG, which um, is very fluid in terms of how much territory is controlled, to which degree territory is controlled. Um, the matter of the fact is, if you look at the administration of the, of the NUG, that it is, um, and I think that's the only example that I can think of, at least in, in, in what, what history I know, of a volunteer administration. So the energy is powered by um, the CDM, so the civil disobedience movement, which are striking civil servants that are aligned with it, where the energy provides support to them. But um, these are not across the country people who are um, officially providing um, their services. And in many areas, security is still contested, so it's messy, right? Um, there's competing claims on, on who controls which territory. So that, that's one reason, right? The second reason um, I would think is, and that's my very private view, um, is geopolitics. Um, the fact that um, Myanmar is on the fault lines of um, a geopolitical conflict um, that is that is building up, 
Um, and we have in China somebody who has, to this point, been a bit invested or been invested with uh, the junta, um, makes it more difficult to um, take sides openly um, for for any foreign powers, I think. Um, and then uh, there's also, uh, I think, the history of pre mature recognitions that we've had yeah um and i absolutely I, I absolutely agree i think this this is something that seems to come in uh very often and it's something that is just a thorn in the side of of progress and i know this is a little bit off topic but when we look at uh things like the pdf when we look at the nug when we look at the movement in Myanmar in general it's it's very difficult to it feels like cognitive dissonance almost on on the side of major powers when they say we want progress and we want to support progressive uh, movements and and organizations and governments while simultaneously uh, politicians are aware of the fact that 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, if they were associated with the support for XYZ organization and it later came to light that that organization was embezzling or was connected to unsavory organizations or was connected to crimes, then they will lose political capital in their home countries. And that that seems to be hamstringing, from my perspective anyway, hamstringing the, the will uh, among parliamentarians and among uh, political movers and shakers in many Western countries who don't want to be caught supporting someone when that may turn uh, very sour. I mean, the United States um, selling weapons to to Iran in order to raise capital to fund the Contras in Nicaragua, you know, is a very good example of, of just how much things can blow up in your face. Um, so what, what, if anything, can the NUG be doing to, to overcome these things? I, I think we could say that these are not necessarily the national unity government's fault, but is there anything that they should be doing or could be doing to overcome these barriers? Um, well, it, two things, I guess, I guess to say here. One is that um, while recognition needs to be, of course, and is a major objective by um, the NUG, non-recognition on the part of potential sympathetic countries, uh, Western countries, democracies in Asia, and so on, um, isn't really an excuse anymore for a lack of support. So I think we have to, we can talk about both things. What the NUG can do to um, or get closer to the eventual goal of recognition um, would be to maybe use a bit better with limited resources they have and resources are limited. Um, of course, there is, there is the diaspora that, that, that is very much linked into what the NUG does in many countries and mobilizing the diaspora has been, has been a success story for the NUG, both in terms of their fundraising and, and also in terms of, of um, advocacy um, and, and relations with the media in, in different countries abroad. And so the NUG has these representative offices. Um, and these representative offices, um, I know it from, from the ones that are that are relevant to, or that are active in, in my home region, 
And these are very, very active, right? There's a lot of communication going out of these offices. They're usually forwarding messaging that comes from the center. Um, but I believe that investment in the capacity of these offices to do more and to be more strategic in communication, um, to observe maybe better what what would what, what consider um, diplomatic protocol would would go a long way. Um, so that's that's an area where investment could help, I think, because you know all these meetings they're very good and sustained engagement is good and especially the in the U.S. with the ambassador to the U.N. Um, there's a very strong representation and that that I think is showing um, success, mm. but. Um, Apart from that, these one-off meetings by ministers, um, be it the foreign minister, be it the minister of human rights or other ministers, um, they're good in creating goodwill, but in terms of, you know, seeing progress on sustained engagement um, and seeing progress on support and incorporation, you need more sustained engagement. Um, and that is usually done by somebody who's on the ground in the country and can really you know, try and reach out to uh, the government institutions of of the partner country on a on a, in a sustained manner, and can also try to try to influence influence how media report on the issue. Because let's face it, Myanmar is not on uh, the radar of many countries uh, that that are potentially sympathetic, and even where it's on the radar, it's not a top priority outside maybe of Southeast Asia. Yeah, absolutely. And and definitely, you know, the war in Ukraine has drawn a lot of attention and goodwill. Yeah. Um, Iran now is on the rise. Although, as, as a counterpoint to that, I think the outpouring of aid and uh, sort of, I mean, um, how should I put this? Uh, just unilateral decisions to send aid and support by individual countries to Ukraine as it defends itself against Russian aggression shows that it is very much within the remit of, uh, of Western powers to say we will unilaterally recognize this government and we will assist this government in establishing order and democracy and, and peace. Um, the money is clearly there. The political will to do these things is clearly there. They, they don't need the approval of their fellow states. And yet when the context is is Myanmar, they don't seem to be particularly willing to to act. There there isn't as much eagerness. Um even though with with the outpouring that happened for the Ukrainian cause, I think with with a tenth of that, uh huge strides could have been made in Myanmar. The the war might already have been brought to an end. Um but yes. that is international politics unfortunately. That's just what we have to deal with. It, um, it, it, it is um, just just the one thing that that actually brings us maybe back to to what I said before, which is so if you leave aside the the, the question of recognition, um, the limited support that the NEG has been has been getting from international partners is really um, to me uh, you know not not defensible. Um, so there is, you're right, there is this outpouring of support and you see it in official statements from everybody uh, 
uh, who's who's basically been involved in in the West. The EU is very strong with their statements. There's been parliamentary resolutions in a number of parliaments. Um, some Asian democracies are very strong um, in Southeast Asia. Malaysia has been has been very uh, supportive, and and yet actual support has been very very limited. And and you don't need recognition to to support. Yeah, there are other ways of doing it. Um, that are below the threshold of recognition. And, and that is something, or the lack of that, is something that is actually, I find more in, in, my, in, in, my, in my personal view, more infuriating than um, the lack of, of, of progress on recognition per se. Absolutely. And, and at the end of the day, any opportunity that we are not taking to, to help the victims of war crimes um, is reprehensible. Right when we have the chance to help, we should be. Now, I want to take it back a little bit because you you made comment when we were talking about uh, the foreign policy and the messaging. You made comment that the resources of the national unity government are very limited, and that I think is an objective truth. Um, but people, I think, don't really understand so much how the finances work here. You also alluded uh, to the fact that this is a a volunteer force, a volunteer government. And by government in this case, I mean not only cabinet, but also effectively a volunteer civil service, um, yes. which in any administration is is going to be large. And we are talking about a country of, of some 54 million people, uh, you know, larger than, than any European country except Russia, obviously. And uh, the administration required to run uh, something of that scale, particularly in a time of conflict, is is enormous. So can you shed a little bit more light on what the finances are, are like when you say volunteer force, exactly what what does that mean? How much is volunteer? How much is compensated? What, what's sort of going on there? Um, so the way um, it currently works is that whatever resources... Um, that are mobilized by the NUG go either into the support of the CDM, meaning um, those um, striking civil servants, whether they're actually used for um, active service delivery um, or not. You know, some are not, not everybody is being used. Um, it's, it's a question of volunteering, right? Some people are comfortable because, you know, a CDM, CDM staff that, that perform services in, in areas that aren't under full control, they, they do that at, at significant personal risk and risk to their families. So um, a lot of resources that, that are incoming are spent on supporting the, the, the physical um, needs and livelihoods of these people. And it's by no means is that adequate. Um, what's incoming is not adequate. Um, it's it's for it's currently the prerogative of each ministry or the duty of each ministry to care about their CDM staff, right? Um, so it's their role to do that. Um, in terms of what that is, that is the administration. That's if you, if you will, that's the public administration. That is the civil service of the of the NUG. There's not yet a regulatory framework around that civil service. Um, and, and it may be too early to do that, but in the future, as they progress, that is probably also a priority that needs to be tackled. But beyond or above that civil service, there is, of course, um, 
the cabinet and then there's people that work with and around um, the ministers. There's, if you if you want, um, the head office of, of the ministries and, and these vary in size. Uh, it can be a few people, can be can be larger, can be dozens of people. And also these people are all volunteers. Um, there are no salaries, there are no living allowances because what money comes in in really, and I have to say, a a, a spirit of self-sacrifice um, is used to support CDMs, and to a certain degree, of course, what resources come in are being used to to support the, the military um, and defense effort um, against the, the Myanmar military, um, and that is currently the situation. Um, and Apart from that, what other resources are available are used for, for service delivery. Um, and that means um, running schools, um, providing um, health services, uh, in t uh, sometimes mobile health services, sometimes these, these um, famous bush clinics, um, and to um, support the livelihood of, of the, the large numbers of internally displaced people. So a lot of calls on the on the purse strings of the national unity government, um, certainly. And I mean, the fact that this is coming from the people themselves, from the communities themselves, is, I mean, it's very difficult to to imagine people who are already facing such hardship being able to make those types of contributions and and regularly making those those types of contributions. But one then would have to surmise that the amount of money that the Myanmar people themselves can raise for the support of the national unity government would be very limited indeed. Like it, it does not well, a lot much. of it comes also from the diaspora. Um, so you can't underestimate the, the impact that, that funding from the diaspora. And diaspora, the Myanmar diaspora is in many countries around the world, as you know, um, has. Um, but also, you know, uh, the diaspora, many, many of these people are also uh, people that live on modest incomes. Um, yep. so let's not forget that. Um, so whatever it is, everybody sacrifices. And so like with regards to the money, the, there's one thing that, that does stand out to me and, and I don't know whether you'd be able to shed light on what's going on there, but the ministry of, uh, planning and finance and investment has run a series of these, um, I don't know how to describe them. They, they, they have investments into the future. So they will take um, land or they will take property. Uh, we saw the end of dictatorship initiative. So they would take uh, Mina Ulhaing's uh, mansion, uh, which he acquired quite, you know, questionably anyway, uh, on Inya Lake. And they split that into, into a series of shares and they were selling shares in the mansion uh, and now they've they've announced investment projects and and um, they're selling off shares and investment opportunities in in Mandalay who is it who's actually buying that like are there are there Western sort of investment companies who are who are leaping at these opportunities or is that also Myanmar people and Myanmar diaspora um, I, I don't have that information I'd be I honestly would be surprised if it, if it wasn't um, the same the same sort of people buying that, the diaspora and um, Myanmar people. Um, I think it's a very smart strategy. The legal claims, of course, will be 
I mean, it'd be very risky for any Western company mm. to buy that. Um, in terms of investment strategy, that's probably that's probably not what what, what Western companies would do. Um, but um, what we what we have to say is that um, the the Ministry of uh, Planning, Finance, Investment has been very ingenious in in identifying um, opportunities and 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 the modalities for raising investments. Um, and it's not only them, right? So there is a number of um, people around that are not part of the NUG, but advise and that are around the NUG that develop other forms. Um, for instance, they raise um, money through apps, right? Um, yeah. Anything from programming of computer games through other apps, um, through where advertisement can then be sold. Um, so all of that is going on, and that's that's a great that's a great way to raise money. Um, and for the for the um, the ministry itself, um, you're aware, of course, of the the revolution bonds, which are bonds that have just the um, that don't don't have any coupon, um, but it's just um, a, a promise of repayment without without interest. Um, and these these have been largely successful, um, but there is of course limits in in how much you can raise through these means, and um, these limits um, may be enough to sustain um, the revolution as it is, um, but it is not enough to put the administration on a sustainable footing in terms of um, being able to make sure that, you know, people who currently volunteer uh, in whatever form for the, for the energy, also at the center of government, will be able to continue doing that. Um, and that's a problem um, in the medium term, and it's also a problem for a movement and a government that is currently still expanding what they do and expanding their services. At some point that needs to be addressed and there is where actually partners that would be interested in this succeeding could come in. Okay, so when you say partners, what, what are we talking, are we talking about foreign governments? Are we talking about yes. NGOs? Are we talking about private companies? For well, all of them, all of them. Your classical, your classical development partners. So, for instance, if you um, if you're a development partner and you fund um, humanitarian effort in the country, um, or um, a lot of development partners have now um, uh, gone back to you know the one on one thing to do if you if you're in a difficult situation, you just start funding NGOs um, and CBOs. Um, with and the question is what what is the absorption capacity there and, and to which degree does that make sense? Um, I, it's a different conversation. I don't wanna I don't wanna go into that in much detail. Mm. But um, what you could do is, for instance, if you fund some of the service delivery um, that is being um, done by the NUG, um, there are ways of setting up your funding in such a way that you ensure also that you're funding the, um, the structures that deliver the services. So, um, and that's usually done in a development context. No, if you have a development project, you fund um, the 
delivery of a service, and that includes certain costs that are associated with it. And the cost for the NUG of 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 um, of delivering would be anything from central coordination to um, the actual delivery of the services on the ground. So that, to my knowledge, is not happening, and 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 that's a problem. Um, so you can always approach the NUG and you can say, you know what, um, I have we can we can give you an advisor to help you, you know, draft this 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 piece of policy, and that's happening and, and that's fine. Um, but ultimately, that's not enough. Ultimately, if you are interested in supporting service delivery in certain areas of the country, um, and you're interested in uh, the success of the democratic movement in the country, um, and you're interested in uh, the building of government structures, yeah, because let's face it, if you don't build the government structures of the NUG, the other structures of, of, of the regime, um, the current junta regime are, are atrophying. So good luck there. Um, you should do this, and you can do this, and it's not impossible to do it even in a in 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 a conventional development logic. Interesting. And so, this is just a, a new sort of area for me. I'm, I'm not familiar with how any of this would work. Like, is is there a way for the NUG to start sort of marketing itself to to development partners actively? Um, there could be, um, there could be, you know, there are, um, in the world of development, there are certain, there are certain ways of, um, you know, let's put it this way. Development partners in, in, in the last decades have realized that it's not always easy to, um, fund or product or even productive to fund just what is the, um, the previously recognized structure or the previously effective structure you know, in these in these situations of fragility um, there have been instruments that have been used by by development partners to to fund a plan for transformation um, and uh, post-conflict compacts, these kind of things, where um, funding of non-recognized entities against certain um, a certain framework or certain commitments for delivery would be possible. So, for instance, if you if if you said as NUG you would produce an aid policy for the for for the NUG, and you would lay out uh, a framework where you would say, you know, we are committed to meet certain certain benchmarks, and these could be negotiated with with interested partners. For instance. Um, we would uh, commit to reform of the security sector um, post-conflict, or we would commit to certain targets in terms of human rights, independence of um, justice sector institutions when they're built, and you would agree on a, on a roadmap and a framework, then this could be an effective tool maybe to attract more resources. So it can be encouraged. Um, but I see the, really right now, I see um, the major responsibility on development partners to do better. Um, because, you know, we're not talking about huge amounts to start with. Um, it's not about, I don't know, the EU um, 
reinvesting all that direct um, budget support for the education sector that hundreds of millions that have been spent there in um, the NUG schools, run schools. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about pilot things where, where you can explore with lower amounts how joint service delivery could happen and you can do that in a project framework um, and, and it's simple just to start. And so this, again, we're going into like sort of strange territory. I know the topic is is the NUG's capacity, but I think this is a very fascinating direction to to look at. When this money is given, when development partners come in, uh, and and the value that they add is, I mean, it, it's significant, right? If you if you suddenly have access to money, if you have access to resources, if you have access to expertise, uh, and the ability to to do things, that is huge. And I think. And, and I hope you would agree, Myanmar will need, not conditional, will need some sort of external assistance post-conflict because we've seen large-scale devastation and destruction of agricultural land. We've seen the destruction of food stores. Um, food shortage is not going to go away. Uh, it's going to take a while to refill the petrol pumps. Uh, petrol wells, for example, like the, the shortages of resources currently existing in that state are not going to disappear from one day to the next. The question that I want to pose, though, is what is the risk associated with this? Because there are certain actors within, certain even state actors within uh, international development who have been noted for leading smaller, poorer countries into effectively debt traps and an endless cycle of of repayments and and using aid as just a way to funnel money back to their own people and their own companies. Is is this something that Myanmar might be subject to and does the NUG have the wherewithal to to navigate that? Uh, I, I I don't know that that will be will be a concern at this point in time. Um, I don't think you will have large investments in infrastructure that are then not being done by multilateral development banks, but by large national banks, as has been the case in some countries that have found themselves recently um, being, um, have their, their infrastructure expropriated. Um, I, I don't think that's, that's, a, that's a big issue. It's more, it's more about um, how to mobilize interest and how to mobilize the support, um, and, and less about I think any any sort of debt trap because I mean the needs as you say are just staggering. You have, you know, students in Myanmar right now they're losing years worth of education. Um, this is going to have an impact on the productivity in the future um, that may be enormous. Yeah. So as you say, uh, there will be need for long-term support and long-term. Uh, as you see, rehabilitation of, of basic infrastructure, but even beyond that, investment in in education, investment in health. You know, the the, the progress that has been made in nutrition in the country surely um, is 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 also um, receding or is also being lost now. So, right now, it's just about mobilizing the support that you can get. Um, and uh, I think that should be the priority of, or is the priority of the NUG. I don't think I have to tell them what their priority is, yeah. but that is the priority. I wouldn't worry too much about um, these phenomena, to be to be quite frank. Okay, well, that, that that's comforting at least. So 
I want to sort of look at the the flip side of the coin. And and going into this interview, I said that it might be somewhat controversial. You you've made a very strong case for the the legitimacy of the national unity government and the efficacy of the national unity government. But I want to talk about the limitations on the national unity government and and. Uh, the flaws associated with it. Certainly the national unity government has not been immune from criticism domestically. And the criticism from, from pro-military factions is should not be surprising to us. It should also not be of any interest to us. But criticism from pro-democracy um, groups and pro-democracy individuals is something to, to note. And um, my initial question is just, you know, I want to compare the national unity government to, to similar uh, cases, to, to similar examples around the world. And, uh, and I know that we've, we've discussed this uh, previously, and uh, I, I still have not been able to find an example of any, any government that has formed under similar circumstances. Uh, and I just want to ask you again, have you, have you been able to think of any government in history in any country that has formed under these circumstances? No. I haven't. Um, we've had this conversation. Um, no, I can't. And, it, and it's quite remarkable what is being done um, in the circumstances. Also, the the idea of a, um, well, you have the CDM, which used to be 400,000 strong. Nobody knows exactly what the numbers are now. Um, the NUG presumably knows. They have a registry. Um, and... Um, but so of those 100,000, at least 10,000 are mobilized. So you have a, a, a volunteer bureaucracy of tens of thousands of people. Where does that exist? Um, or has that existed in history? So that's, that's, that's clear. When, when we talk about the, 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 the limitations that you mentioned or uh, the criticism of, of the NUG, I think you have to divide between the criticisms that criticize the, the efficacy of uh, the NUG in uh, getting to consensus and delivering. And then there's the other criticism of um, the NUG maybe overstepping their boundaries and encroaching on um, other actors in the coalition. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so um, both of those criticisms are actually the the same well different sides of the same coin and they're somewhat somewhat um, in conflict or contradicting each other because to be uh, more effective the NUG has to go ahead and do things and deliver services and they are especially when it comes to local government of course in some cases in some areas of the country when you do that and when you start delivering and you start establishing local structures, you may not, um, not all the actors on the ground that are sympathetic to the general democratic movement, and we all know how broad the democratic movement is, that is also its strength, um, may not be happy with that. So, um, you know, it's a bit of a situation of damned if you do and damned if you don't, but we, we need to remember that the NUG is a national unity government. And that is the situation that any national unity government um, finds itself in. And some of the criticisms I find a bit too harsh um, because some of the criticism is actually not about the capacity of the NUG to do things, um, 
but it goes more to the fact that consensus is not easily to be had. And um, when we talk about finding consensus on, say, proposed policy, then there are other actors involved. And there's certainly the parliament involved, the CRPH, um, um, the, the interim federal union parliament, if you want to call it that. Um, and there's also the National Unity Consultative Council involved. And there have been really strong efforts on all sides, we have to say, to make this coordination work when it comes on, say, developing a common approach to what education should look like um, delivered in delivered by different systems, right? Delivered by the ethnic revolutionary organization systems, delivered in in schools that are that are run by the Ministry of Education, and so on and so forth. So um, this coordination is very very difficult, and it's it, it would be extremely difficult in a national unity government in peacetime. Um, this is very fluid. It's a conflict um, situation, pressure on all sides. Um, not everybody has been friends before they have found themselves to be allies. So I think it is to be expected. Um, and I think one of the key priorities in the future for the NUG also as an executive government, but also the democratic movement more widely to be successful is to work on simplifying this conversation, work on developing structures that allow decision-making while still being inclusive, allow some sort of delegation, right? If you have a committee, have rules for the committee, have rules for membership on the committee, establish secure reporting lines, have a procedural framework on how things is done. Um, I think the NUG internally is further in terms of developing that procedural framework. Um, in the NUCC, I have my doubts. Um, but that is what's needed. Okay, so you've just touched on a lot of different things there. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm very glad that you have. But let's let's sort of take them sort of one step at a time because there, there are problems in the national unity government. I don't think anybody is seriously suggesting that there aren't. But there's always a very big difference between problems of individual members versus problems of the actual structure of an organization versus problems of the infrastructure available to the organization. These are all very different types of issues. So let's first examine like what what is even at play here. So we the National Unity Government cabinet uh, is is made up of you know a few dozen people. But you mentioned the the CRPH, which is the the de facto parliament, so the legislature, and also the NUCC. How many people are we talking about here? Um, in the CIR, well, in the the NUCC is made up of organizations, right? Um, so there are delegates of different organizations that take uh, that participate in the meetings. But in the NUCC, you have well, over, you would always have well over a hundred people. Um, in the uh, CRPH, you have a bit over twenty people in any in any type of meeting, right? Um, so if you want if you want to have a decision body, a decision making body that um, that needs to come to a decision with I don't know 120, 150 people, and you don't have a procedural framework, you're in trouble. Yeah, and so and, and this is another question then with these. Uh, 
meetings like meetings are a hot button issue um we've seen memes being made uh on burmese facebook seemingly pointing out and, and laughing at these these endless stream of meetings and these promotional uh videos and and footage that members of various uh democratic government uh, entities are releasing on their social media to say well look at all these meetings we're attending look at all the work that we're doing these meetings, when you say um, CRPH, you know, you've got about 20 people in a meeting. Do those 20 people have the authority within the system to actually come to a conclusion at the end of their meeting, decide on a course of action, and have that implemented? Or is that meeting supposed to come to a resolution which is then presented to yet another meeting to be reevaluated by a different group of people? If we talk specifically about the CRPH, then you can think of the CRPH as being, um, and this is a this is an arrangement that is that is only in place at interim. Um, you have that in other parliaments as well around the world. Um, you have the CRPH being um, an, a manifestation of the wider parliament. So what happens is if if a bill say is coordinated between the NUG and the NUCC then comes to the legislature. CRPH will, CRPH's committees, there are committees in place, uh, parliamentary committees will meet and review the bill, and then it goes to CRPH, and then it is approved. And, and so at interim, it's then approved. And then there is the whole Pidam Suluto, like all the MPs that have been elected, they come together um, once every quarter to sometimes once every half year, and they go through these these decisions um, and, and validate them. That's how it currently works. As said, that's not how our parliament would, would always work in peacetime, um, but it is um, the closest to you can, that, that you can get at the, in the current situation to a parliamentary process. They also, by the way, um, receive the reports from the NUG and, and look at those reports. So the energy actually reports on their performance to the CRPH. So there is this basic legitimacy that is there um, from the 2020 election, right? So we sometimes forget in all this debate that we actually have an elected parliament um, in Myanmar. And um, interestingly, I also think development partners have a bit moved on from that conversation. If you think, if you look at what, what some, some of the resolutions that have come out recently, everybody's talking about, you know, the um, democratic organizations that are there, support to, to civil society, and so on. But it, as a matter of fact, we still have a clear, legitimate basis for um, CRPH as a, as a parliament and the NUG is a responsible government. And then the NUCC as sort of a, a, a society-wide um, council. Um, you could even think of it as um, the, the, the nucleus of a constituent assembly for, you know, for the future, for designing the state of the future. Um, and that's if you read the Federal Democracy Charter, the, 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 um, the NUCC is supposed to, to give guidance on the broad outlines of um, where uh, the democratic movement and um, the democratic camp wants to go, what the future, um, or the interim, as they, as they say now, the interim or the transitional, interim is now, transitional is the future, the transitional 
um, state of Myanmar, the, the federal state of Myanmar will look like, whereas policy and bills would come from the NUG and um, the review and approval would be uh, by the COPH and then um, the, the federal union parliament, meaning the bigger body of, of all the elected MPs. So that's what it should be. Um, in fact, the coordination between all these actors is 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 is, is challenging, as, as 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 you've said, or as we've discussed before. And um, the lack of sometimes lack of procedures um, that is in place um, makes it harder to come to consensus um, between say cabinet and sometimes the NUCC um, or makes it take longer to process policy and process bills. Mm. So, I mean, this is a, this is a substantial framework. I mean, yes, obviously governance is a very complicated, complicated thing, but there are a lot of people involved and, and you're, you're saying to me that legislation the legislature itself will only meet and validate decisions quarterly uh, at best. That that seems to be a reasonably slow pace of legislation. Is legislation actually important under the current situation? Like, is that really as relevant as it would be in a peacetime administration? Or is it something that we can afford to, de to delay for three months or six months? Well, um, it's... Well, the way it's being it's being now is that it comes into that the legislation is considered to be in effect as soon as it's approved by um, CRPH, which is the core group that that meets more regularly, right? And then the validation comes later. Um, but it's it's a good point um, to to ask whether legislation has uh, the same effect as it has in peacetime. I would suggest policy is, is indeed at this point more important than. Than legislation, which is an implementing tool for policy. The question right now is to get the overall policy right for the current interim framework. Yeah? Sometimes, you know, the the, the, the aim of, of that policy is also to, to look forward to the transitional period. But by no means should there be an understanding that whatever transitional or interim, um, for instance, education policy should be the final solution for the future of Myanmar because it's not, it's not, the current period um, will come to an end and if the revolution is successful, then a whole new situation will open up and new actors will be in the next iteration of the NUG um, mm. uh, because uh, Presumably, um, other other um, entities in the country, um, other EROs, other political entities, maybe in the future, other political parties, will then um, have want to have a say. So, what is now is a bit short term, um, and it needs to serve the interests of now. Yeah, and and moving forward, I, I definitely do want to to move on a, a, at some point to asking about the future and the transition from the current state of affairs into a more stable state of affairs. But in, in the interest of, of genuinely sort of understanding what is going on right now and what the limitations are of the current system, 
I want to take it back to to the comment you just made, saying that policy is is more important than legislation in the current context. So policy comes from the national unity government. The cabinet of the national unity government is is reasonably small. Um, in terms of actual number of ministries, I, I think there are probably only about uh, a, a dozen or so, maybe a little bit more than that, in, in terms of the actual number of ministries. And cabinet meets as per usual, and then the ministers and the deputy ministers go back to their ministries, and they will have min- meetings with their uh, their staff to implement that policy. I, I mean, that is the mechanism within the national unity government. It is the mechanism that we see in most countries, this is not an unusual system. Is the national unity government effective in this uh, workflow, however? Internally. Um, Reasonably, I would say. Um, There is, um, so what you have uh, normally um, in, in uh, in a government, in a central coordination framework, there is, as you say, there is cabinet. Um, what is what is missing is a very well developed cabinet office um, that is not not currently in place, and that's just for lack of resources um, and and lack of staff. Yeah. Um, so the preparation of cabinet decisions is not as elaborate as you would have it in a established government in peacetime. You know, the rules for how a policy should look like when it comes to cabinet, the rules for, for what is the state of preparation of a topic when it comes to cabinet. Because, you know, in general, cabinet is an ultimate decision-making body. Cabinet is not a body for discussing. So in theory, or in general, in general practices, uh, practice actually, um, anything that is not ready for decision should not come to cabinet. Um, so in terms of how the preparation of matters that come before cabinet, the structures are not yet fully there. Um, in terms of um, the fact that a policy is developed by a ministry and then there are rules in place for how this is discussed in cabinet and then how this is on, decided on by cabinet, that is in place. So the basic structures are there. Importantly, also, there are um, reporting frameworks in place, meaning um, the center of government has the, the ability to know wh- what is being implemented of that policy, right? So the ministries have reporting frameworks in place that go down to township level, right? Things are usually implemented on the ground, township level. The information come back, uh, comes back up and is then sent to the center of government and analyzed there. Now, this is not perfect, um, but the basic process of A, policy making, um, and then B, uh, the instruments for policy implementation, and C, the reporting on uh, both the policy, so the narrative side, and also the financial side, all of that is in place. Okay. So that sounds reasonably good, but... You so you mentioned in, in previously in this interview that there is criticism regarding the NUG's ability to to implement policy. So the way you explain it, I mean, it sounds very reasonable. You would say the workflow is basically generally correct, 
people are not acting as efficiently as they could be acting. But the basic principle is there. There are layers of um, sort of verification and uh, accountability built into the system to ensure that nobody goes sort of off the rails. And yet, even if if that's the case, and even if we can look at the national unity government and say, well, okay, yeah, you're, you're doing the best that you can under the circumstances that, that you have to deal with. If there is criticism from within Myanmar, from within the pro-democracy uh, faction of the national unity government, whether real or perceived, lack of ability to deliver on promises being made, lack of ability to to act quickly, and uh, and certainly we've seen a lot of sort of chatter. It's become part of the the online culture in a sense to sort of understand that bad things will happen and the national unity government will not act on those things. Or if they act, it will be very, very delayed or it will be very muted. And basically this sense of, well, yeah, asking the national unity government to fix these problems is sort of an inside joke. Is there a threat that they can start losing the support of of the people if they don't make an effort to appear more effective and more decisive uh, in their implementation of policy? I mean, that threat is always there, right? Um, you are you're absolutely right. You are in a situation that's very difficult um, for all the actors involved, including um, the the top political level, so the ministers of the of the NUG, but also the, the, the volunteers, advisors, and everybody else working with them. Um, I think um, that danger is absolutely there. Um, one of the problems that I see is, is, is again, uh, one of resources. So um, I think I mentioned before a bit this culture of sacrifice, the idea that whatever resources incoming is only invested um, into the things that I've mentioned, um, CDM, service delivery, um, mostly humanitarian assistance, um, and the, uh, the, the defense effort, um, which is understandable, but it goes to such a degree that whatever funds that are being centrally um, created and used by, um, say, the Ministry of, of uh, Collected and Used by the Ministry of Planning, Finance and Investment and that are then transferred to the individual ministries are also used exclusively for these purposes. There's no investment in building further and institutionalizing these coordination structures that we've just discussed. And the culture of sacrifice also prevents that. I've had conversations with, with people working inside the ministries where I've asked them, okay, so you're spending all your time with this, but what about your livelihood? And they will say, no, 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 uh, I don't want to discuss this. This is not, this is not something um, we all need to make sacrifices. And I said, but will you be able to sustain yourself? You know, I don't, I don't want to discuss this. So there is this culture of sacrifice that may actually be inhibiting institutional progress because resources into the ability to administer and become more effective are not allocated. And that's where I see um, a big role also for development partners to come in with resources. And I'm, I mean financial resources, but I also mean technical assistance um, to, you know, what makes this government run as a government. 
Um, and that would help the effectiveness. It can't solve the political issues. Um, the political issues need to be solved by the, by the actors on the ground. And um, if the political issues, as you've alluded to, are not solved by the actors on the ground, yes, ultimately any government will lose support. Um, but at least on the institutional side, um, much can be approved with, improved with a little bit of support. Mm. And th so this is something that you just mentioned a couple of times, the, the sacrifice element. And I want to read, uh, I mean, notionally back to you, but for the benefit of the audience, I want to read from an article that you published uh, that you also sent me, uh, Myanmar NLD at 33, which we will also link uh, below this podcast. And and these, these two paragraphs here that you've written, I think, really do help contextualize it. The NLD endured two decades in the underground because it was able to develop the structures of a mass political party. These included a strong central administration, topping a pyramid structure of party branches in states and regions, districts, townships, all the way down to ward and village tracts, Myanmar's lowest tier of public administration, and an unrivaled internal coherence based on a culture of sacrifice. Quote, we gathered some people who were really active and they decided through semi-democratic voting, electing the people with the most prominent history of activism and the most sacrifices, end quote, Uang Jinyot, NLD Central Executive Committee member and now CRPH chair. Now, this, this is something that you've mentioned in this interview, something that you've written about before, this, this culture of, of sacrifice. And it seems like this is something that is not just part of the political reality of Myanmar, but is, is part of every or many Myanmar people's view of the world and view of what they have to do in order to achieve uh, progress, in, in order to, to liberate themselves from the military. They have to make sacrifices. They have to give whatever they can to support the PDF, to support the, uh, the CDM, to support the NUG, to support whatever the case may be. Uh, and, and I know this is not a topic that you want to delve into too deeply, but uh, I, I do want to just touch on it. Do you feel that the culture of sacrifice is net beneficial or is the, is the focus on sacrifice getting in the way a little bit of, of uh, planning more efficiently? Both. <laughs> okay. Um, I, uh, you know, without that culture of sacrifice, there wouldn't be um, a CDM. Um, there wouldn't be, and I'm not talking about, you specifically quoted the article about the NLD. I think that applies to political culture in Myanmar in general. And, uh, you know, the, the culture that underpins the democratic aspirations of the country. And, and that's lived experience. Um, we don't have to go into the history of Myanmar. I mean, your listeners will know. Um, so without that culture, I don't think any of this would have happened. I don't think the CDM would have been as strong. Definitely the CDM would not have endured because look at what happens in other countries when repression hits. You know, things just go away. Um, and it's entirely normal to go away. And the, the fact that it's still there, this volunteer basis of the NUG um, as an administrative apparatus and as a government is still there is because of that culture. The fact that, um, you know, seniority is very much valued and um, the track record of um, 
suffering or the track record of sacrifice is then a political factor in determining career chances and in determining a seniority and um, the rise to a, to a position of power and whether that gets in the way of, you know, getting the, the people who will be most suited to the current situation or to the, to the role in question. I'm sure that's a factor. Um, I'm sure that's a factor across all the, all the organizations in the country. Um, but it's also quite normal. It's just an extreme way of selecting people for higher political office that is very normal in all other countries in the world as well. I mean, people don't usually get to be the minister because they're the best suited. They get to be the minister because they've invested a significant time in working inside their party. And yes, they may be smart and yes, they may be suited, but that's how it works. And in, in Myanmar's history of extreme politics, it is this culture of sacrifice, I think, that, that, that gives you the street cred to, to rise up and gives you also the respect of the people. Fair enough. And so with that, let's move to uh, another sort of topic that you, you touched upon. You, you said that the fundamental criticisms of the national unity government are divided into basically the perceived failure to, de to deliver on policy uh, and the perception of the, N the NUG's overreach. Now, that uh, largely, from, from my perception, I may be wrong, but that seems to largely occur within the debate around federalism and the role that a central Myanmar government will now and will post-coup or post-conflict play in the administration of non-ethnic Bama regions and the expectations that a lot of these border regions have, uh, both currently and in the future, of autonomy. Can you can you provide a little bit of context for what what the 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 conflict not not conflict but the the disagreements and the criticisms are with regard to this uh, perceived overreach? Um, I don't think uh, we should over dramatize this. Uh, just to just as a as a as a qualifier, I think uh, these are things that are. These are concerns that are being raised on the ground um, when, when, when speaking to people that, that they feel that sometimes, um, for instance, especially um, it came in, in when I when I spoke to people, it came from some of the, the uh, these state interim consultative councils, right? The the nucleus for for the future state governments. Um, some factions in that, not all factions, um, that said, you know. Um, we um, want to be federal in the future, but at the same time, the, NL, the, the, the NUG just goes ahead and does things, but they shouldn't, they should let us do it. Um, and that may be um, a fair aspiration to have, but the counterparts that have noted this to me were all at the same time saying, yes, we're in the in the process of establishing our state government, but we can't agree among each other at this point. So we'll stay as a committee. And so, and we also don't have staff to support the committee. So at one point, 
many people say, look, um, they're going ahead um, and they're not consulting us. And at the same time, the question is, if they don't go ahead, then will they be criticized for not being effective? And if they consulted that faction, would it be the same outcome? My, my, uh, would, it, would it be as effective as it could be? So my point is, yes, there are these criticisms, and yes, some of them may be justified, but very often the, the energy is in a situation where we're damn if you do, damn if you don't, right? Mm -hmm. So if you consult everybody, you're not gonna get things done. If you get things done, you will alienate some people. And um, I think in the, in the short term, it's pretty clear anyway where um, the NUG local administrations are strongest. That's in the central countries. And then in the country, in, in, in the central part of the country, and then in the uh, states, uh, in, in, for their, uh, in former Kaya state or in Kaya state and in uh, Chin state, um, where the local structures are of, or the, 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 the ethnic and, and, and ethnic political party and ERO um, led political structures are not as consolidated and that there's a bit of overlap in terms of the administration. Um, there it needs to be resolved, but I think these, these issues are not so much in in those areas where it's clear who is con in control of the structure. So I don't think these issues are the same when we talk about um, the Karen, the ethnic Karen structures, right? Um, versus the energy structures. So it's more a question of at the fringes. In the longer run though, um, and that's something that has to be resolved in the transition, the question needs to be resolved of, you know, whose administration, and that should be resolved based on what service is delivered by what level of government to the best way. Um, and that is a debate that's not, not been had at this point in time and, and needs to be had more. So more, mm. more debate about, less debate about aspirations and more debate about getting things done would, would probably be useful. And then um, maybe the criticism would would be more valid in my view. And that's my very personal view. And, and, and definitely, I don't want to sort of uh, make it sound as though you're, you're necessarily speaking for entire organizations. Um, so, so I just want to clarify, with, with these uh, problems that arise, the conflict that the NUG is faced with, you know, uh, implement a policy, but then upset some people that whose toes you stood on versus don't implement the policy, engage with these people, but then face the backlash for inaction. Um, I, to a certain degree, um, those are, those are normal issues, right? Um, as you say, and as if you alluded to in your question, but of course in, in peace times that you, you have institutions and you have polities where, things are already done in a certain way. And sometimes, you know, in, in some of the more mature uh, federal states that we all know, the problem is actually reforming a system because it has been, um, it has ossified and, and nobody can reform it anymore. Um, can give you an example from my country. This is really weird that um, protection of youth is uh, the mandate of nine states 
and not a federal mandate in my country. And it's been a huge issue, but you can't change it anymore. So in, um, and there, coordination is always an issue. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, and fighting between the federal unit and the national unit or, and the, and the union is always an issue. And there are usually also uh, constitutional courts or tribunals to resolve this. So that's normal, as you, as you say. But it's, of course, harder in the current situation because, A, the pressure is there constantly. Um, pressure for survival, uh, security pressure, and um, communication is really difficult. And uh, the... the, the Um, demands physically, health, psychologically on all the actors are overwhelming. So I think uh, these are just very, very difficult issues that can't be easily resolved. Now, my if you ask what my opinion is, my opinion is at this point in time, it's more important to do. Um, yeah. But definitely in the, in the medium run, um, these things need to be resolved, and it's not gonna it's not gonna happen overnight. I also don't think we should expect that any transition that results is gonna happen and be done overnight. This will take time. So, so that that really sort of neatly segues uh, into the sort of last uh, focus that I want to to have in this interview, which is looking to the future. And I know inherently that this calls very heavily for speculation. Um, and, and we cannot make any firm statement on what the future holds. I, I don't know. Maybe you would agree, maybe you would disagree. I don't think that many of the stakeholders involved in Myanmar right now have really started firmly considering what is going to happen post-conflict. The focus really is just on getting to the end of the conflict and trying to, to defeat the, the military. Um, but what, what do you think, assuming victory comes, uh, and fortunately that is increasingly looking more likely, what do you think is going to be the next step? Will the NUG simply stand down and say, all right, now we are going to have a fresh wave of elections? Or, or will they implement their own transition period? What do you think would happen? Well, um, there is in the Federal Democracy Charter um, a roadmap towards the transition um, and the roadmap isn't very well in a, in a sense it is very detailed because it has many steps but it isn't very clear on on what exactly will happen but there is an understanding i think among all actors that once this is won there has to be a transition phase that has to accommodate more interest than are currently being accommodated inside that coalition so um, the interim unity government will make way for a transitional unity government. And in my mind, that will actually be an expansion um, of the cabinet and maybe reshufflement of the cabinet. But it won't probably change the structures that are being built now and the practices that are being built now. So even with a view to a transitional situation, it's important to strengthen the structures that are in place now for administration. You will not have the whole NUG 
based on tens of thousands of CDMers being tossed aside and replaced with something entirely new. That is just not practical, practical and it's not, not possible. Yeah? So you have created, you are creating institutions and these institutions will remain. Now, the way these institutions may be structured or um, who controls um, politically which aspect and which mandate will be devolved to to um, or which policy area will be devolved to which level of administration, that is up up for discussion. But these institutions are now the institutions, and 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 I think they will remain to a certain degree. Yeah. Mm. You have, of course, then the situation of the structures that are still in place, the part of the civil service that is still in place um, and now controlled by the SAC. So you will see um, uh, a need to accommodate um, many of the civil servants. You will need uh, to see um, a pragmatic approach to integration, right? The thing is, or the good thing is that, you know, the CDM essentially is still organized by the, in the institutional boundaries that are there. Yeah? So they haven't torn everything up and reorganized. No, the networks that were there before inside the CDM, so for instance, for the Ministry of Education, still the same networks. Yeah? Um, there's a new culture of working as a more, more democratic culture, but there is continuity. Yeah? It's not out of, out of thin air that this, that this administration has built. There is a certain continuity. That is a good thing for the, for the transition. Absolutely. But it will inevitably, uh, it, it is going to be a difficult transition. Like the amalgamation, as you alluded to, of of uh, the the government departments that are under the control of the SAC and the government departments that are being run by the National Unity Government, um, sort of, like there appears to be, and this is an issue that has been sort of flagged multiple times uh, by by certain ministries like the Ministry of of Home Affairs and, and Immigration, that there will be penalties for civil servants who refuse to join the civil disobedience movement. Now, do you feel that that is going to to happen? Do you feel that those people are going to be completely disenfranchised as the threats have been made? And if so, is that going to strip the the civil structures, the civil infrastructure of Myanmar, of of people who maybe have indispensable organizational knowledge? Um, look, no, no, it's too many people. Look, I can give you an example. I can give you an example. Um, I'm Austrian. We've had um, uh, a Nazi regime, as you know, in Austria, um, many collaborators with the Nazi regime. And we had the same issue. We then had a, a democratic republic and we had so many collaborators. So what happened was these people were disenfranchised for one election. In the civil service, nobody lost their job. Um, and they have been re- reintegrated in society and the same will happen also. Also, we, we shouldn't forget that not everybody who is still in the, the, the civil service mm-hmm. is, is, is an absolute partisan of the junta. In fact, most people most likely aren't. Um, they all used to vote NLD anyway. 
in the past. So um, A, can most people be integrated and B, for political reasons and for, for sheer numbers, you have to reintegrate these people. And, 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 and that will, will be done or will need to be done and it will be done because there's no way around it. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's something that, that makes sense. It's quite evident when you, when you think about the logistics that would be involved and the threats that are made are, are very high-level threats of having to repay all of the salary that they received during, during the coup period and, and being barred from, from civil service, being barred from having a passport, being barred from entering universities and educational institutions for five years, ten years, and so on. Um, just the paperwork around the implementation of these threats is, uh, would alone you know, be, a, be a huge draw on the administrative capabilities of the system. And, and on top of that, the fact that many people who have not joined the CDM have not joined the CDM because they cannot afford to go to jail because their families would would starve if they did. Um, so it's a, it's a very difficult system. So, so, so you're saying that you 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 see a roadmap forward to reintegration and to to steal from from the South African uh, system uh, truth and reconciliation. Would that yeah. be an accurate description? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And um, and so moving on to the the bigger issue which we discussed before, the, the specifically the issue of federalism. So you've mentioned the roadmap in um, in the Federal Democracy Charter. How clear of an idea does it give us? Like, what what is the the scope for disagreement over what the Federal Democracy Charter actually says between different stakeholders? You mean uh, implied in in the way it's phrased itself? Um, it's, yeah. it's quite open. Um, it's it's specific on on steps, but it's quite uh, unspecific on certain areas. So, for instance, um, any time uh, something is not clearly um, stated as a union member, uh, union prerogative in the Federal Democracy Charter or Federal Government prerogative, it is said it will be resolved at. Uh, the state level through state autonomy. So it's actually um, quite open what that will mean. And I think it has to be open at this point in time because of which, as we just noted, um, currently um, what, you, what you need to legislate for or make policy for is the interim and the beginning of the transition period. Once the, if, once the regime is defeated, you will have, have so many actors that need to be accommodated. All of our kind needs to be accommodated. You have um, a lot of organizations in, in, the, um, in the Northeast um, that are de facto independent already that at least you need to try to accommodate. There are political parties that are maybe sympathetic but haven't come forward. Um, there are parties that are may not be sympathetic um, and are... Um, quietly uh, sitting on their hands. So you need to ha leave certain flexibility as to what um, the future will look like in terms of what is at the union level, what is at the, at the level of the, of the states. Um, and then the, the debate that hasn't been had enough, I think, is one of local governance. Because if you look at the weakest part, I think, in Myanmar's government uh, governance system was always local governance. Myanmar always had local administration and never a local government. You know? 
I mean, he had community level representation through the ward and village track administrators, and that's that's fine. But there was never local government, and some of the some of the big questions around who who has nominal control of what and what 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 would flu what will future boundaries of the countries of the internal boundaries and administrative divisions and so look like yeah, probably best resolved at the local level so these are the things that you cannot discuss right now because you're not you can't make that decision it is something that yes you can plan for having the conversation you can signal you can sort out uh, basic um, guiding lines and basic points of agreement but it would be in my mind detrimental to have it all worked out by now because you have to rip it up anyway and you know once you have it worked and once you have it all worked out you're very reluctant to rip it up for somebody else you need to accommodate mm. and so the the million dollar question here is because everyone's going to have their own version. Everyone has their own idea of, of what should happen. And some people would say, well, we want, you know, very strong state administration. Some people would say, no, we want one devolution of power, you know, as, as low down to the community level as possible. Do, it, this is, this has to come out like th this has to be put on the table and, and there are going to be some very heated debates. Um, and no matter what you do, like to, to borrow a phrase that, that, uh, you've used quite a few times tonight, damned if you do, damned if you don't, like no one is, is going to come up with a plan that's going to keep everybody happy. So is there potential for the, the disagreements over exactly what federalism would mean, the disagreement between state level administration, federal administration, uh, local administration to, to stymie the efforts to actually successfully transition into a new government, whatever government that might be. Can't hear you now. I have no idea how to answer this. <laughs> Be quite frank. <laughs> That's a very, that is a very good question, and, um, and it does call for a lot of speculation. So I, it's, it's very speculative. Um, I, I don't know. The uh, the the question is, um, and let me re let me paraphrase it maybe so that that I'm sure I understand it correctly. Um, the question is whether um, uh, the current infighting that's there about what is the future of federalism, whether that will be problematic in terms of um, the transition um, and how to, how to get to consensus to find a new form of uh, transitional institutional arrangements, etc. That's it, or, right? Or more to the point, I'm not quite asking about the current infighting. Rather, I'm asking about whether the fact that nobody has actually written it down in black and white in firm and certain terms is going to lead to infighting once once the military has been taken out of the picture um well there is already um to a certain degree there are uh, problems over the uh understanding of, of federalism and uh, Myanmar's history is riddled with um 
conflicts about what federalism actually means, even between those actors that have um, committed to federalism. There is, uh, and I'm not an expert on this, um, but there is a sense that all the states that will be forming out of these um, these um, uh, interim councils that are in place in the different states, they're also all um, working away on their own constitutions. And many of those actors that are working away on these constitutions already have developed constitutions in uh, the early 2000s. And so they want to draw heavily on those. Um, and then the question is, if you have these state constitutions as a nucleus, to which degree are these state constitutions that are being developed compatible with each other? And what do they imply for the federal level, right? So it's actually a quite an organic way of building a building a, a, a federal union when you do it from, from the bottom up. Um, I think whatever the, the final form of um, an agreement would be, um, we'll probably see, and I think that's consensus, um, very, very limited and very, very, very light touch federal government that does what, what only need, only what needs to be done, meaning um, defense, meaning uh, monetary policy, m meaning um, foreign fast. policy, yeah, yeah meaning the um, uh, coordinating development assistance, all of that, um, and probably not much more. Do, do you think environmental um, policy and protection would be federal? Well, it should be, but um, I'm not sure. I think everything's on the table. That's that's the thing. Everything, and then in the transition, when more actors uh, come to to the to the table, then everything will have to be in the table. You will probably have a a very very federalized future. Okay, that's interesting. At least so, that is the aspiration. Whether that fly, whether that will work in a country with that has a history of very centralized institutions is another matter but that is the that is i think the aspiration fair enough and so so we we've actually gone pretty uh, pretty far afield in in some of these the the initial topic is just is the nug in a position to be able to effectively govern uh and and i think we've covered a lot with with regard to their internal structures and 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 with regard to a view to the future of Myanmar post conflict and and how that might turn out, obviously nobody knows for sure. Um, mm. But but I but I definitely think we've covered a lot of very valuable ground. But as is uh, our custom here, I want to to finish off with any thoughts that you might have that you want to to leave the audience with. Anything that you want the audience to go away. Uh, mulling over in their minds or any message that you think is a very important takeaway from the discussion that we've had today or from the work that you've done uh, previously? I think um, there's one thing that I've continuously tried to highlight in the work that I've done, um, and it is all the criticism that can be labeled at, um, and I'm not only talking about the NUG, but all the other actors that are 
there in the democratic coalition anybody the criticisms of the NUCC um, the criticism of the CRPH um, what we should do is think about the alternatives to this what is the alternative to this succeeding you will not have elections in 2023 that will produce another transition um, you will not have a state, and that is my, my honest um, assessment. You will not have a state that's anywhere close to the boundaries of, of, of Myanmar right now. You will not have regional stability. So whenever we judge what the democratic actors do with their limited resources, we should also look at what the, the, the junta regime doesn't do and is incapable of doing. You know, they're not just bad because they're evil, they're bad because they're incompetent. Um, and that is something that I think should be more worrying to countries that frankly don't really care as much about, um, you know, the rights of, of, of the people or um, that are less liberally minded and more interested in economic stability just think about how spectacularly bad this junta is at governing. And then with that in mind, I think um, anybody in a, in a position of decision-making in a, in, a, in a sympathetic country can, can maybe make a better case about why support to the NUG um, and the coalition partners of the NUG is a good thing right now. I know for a lot of podcast listeners, as soon as the fundraising requests start up, you kind of just zone out and skip ahead till it's over. But I ask that if you've taken the time to listen to our full podcasts, that you also take the time to consider our spiel. Some may assume that producing a two-hour episode wouldn't take much more time than the conversation itself. But so much goes into it. In advance of the interview, our content team reviews the biography and relevant works of the upcoming guest, and we discuss the best way to use our limited time together. After the interview is complete, the raw audio file is sent to our sound engineer who shapes it into working order. A single episode can take several full days of solid production work in the studio, which is then carefully coordinated with our content team to ensure smooth listening. Further edits and post-production magic bring the eventual episode to your ears, along with extensive written descriptions of each interview, which we publish on our blog and on social media as well. Many of these steps require an outlay of funds in some way or another. We hope that each episode helps to inform you about the ongoing crisis. And if you find it of value, we also hope that you can consider supporting our mission. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, internally displaced person IDP camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. 
perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org. And donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh my baby.